Right, Mark chapter 14, if you would turn there in your Bibles. Mark 14, as we pick up where we left off last week. Beginning in verse 27, I'm just going to read a few verses and then we'll pray once more and then we'll get into our study. But in verse 27, it says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny, deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Father, we pray as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, we ask, Lord, as we always do, that you would teach us, that we would approach the scriptures, if we're truly yours, if we're born again, we have your spirit dwelling within us, the teacher, the indwelling teacher, we pray, Lord, that you would help us draw application, things that we could apply, things that we could see, and we could apply to our own lives today as your followers, as your disciples. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for you. We recognize your presence with us today, and we ask your blessing upon the remainder of our time. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you were with us last week, you know that in verse 19 of chapter 14, uh, we saw the, um, the disciples, each one of them apparently, one after another, asking the question after Jesus said that one of you, one of the 12, would betray him. And so one by one, one after another, they all asked the question, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And then I, I took you to... I don't know if I took you there, but I read from Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 26, verse 25, same account, different author, where it says, Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And, and Jesus said to him, you've said it, you've said it. So I, I just want to kind of set the stage, guys. This is this is the final night that Jesus is going to be with them as far as his earthly ministry is concerned. Of course, he would meet with them after the resurrection. But they had been with him three years, maybe a little bit longer than that. They had no doubt eaten Passover meals with him over the years. You know, every year that the Passover feast would come up, they would eat the meal. They just ate of that meal, and, and they saw how Jesus said, no longer does the bread of the Passover meal represent the children of Israel leaving in haste, you know, that unleavened bread. No longer does the, the cup, one of the four cups of the Passover, no longer does it speak of the lamb that was slain for the children of Israel so long ago, but, but the bread now represents, Jesus says, my body, and the blood uh, or the wine represents my blood. And so he pours into this meaning, but no doubt, as they're listening to all of these things, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, who's going to betray Jesus? He said, one of, one of you, one of the 12, one of us 
And I wonder if they were even paying attention as Jesus was speaking. You know, it seemed like a lot of times they weren't really paying attention when Jesus was speaking. At least they didn't seem to catch the important things like we're going up to Jerusalem. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be crucified and on the third day rise again. They didn't quite get that until after it happened. But I wonder if they were preoccupied in their thoughts, if they were thinking, I wonder who it's going to be. I wonder if some of them troubled within themselves saying, it's, it's me. I know it's me. I'm the one. I'm the one that's going to portray Jesus. And so they hear this, and this is bad news. This isn't good news from their perspective. They hear this, but Jesus doesn't stop with that. As we saw, he went on and he added more bad news, at least what seemed to be bad news for them at the time. Verse 27, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written. You know, guys, this is so important. For it is written. People want to, they want to diminish the importance of the word of God. Don't be one of those people. For it was written. And then he quotes, he quotes from a prophet who lived hundreds of years before Christ, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Listen, guys, Jesus, as he lived his life many times, he would draw their attention back to the scriptures, back to the scriptures that they had as it was written, as Isaiah said, as Jeremiah said. He would remind them, listen, the prophets wrote about these things, the very things that I'm doing, the very things that I'm fulfilling. They wrote about these things long before they were ever fulfilled so that you might recognize I'm the one. I'm fulfilling these prophecies right before your very eyes. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with us? You know, Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years. Listen, the same Jesus says he's coming back. In fact, remember when he ascended into heaven? Do you remember where he ascended from? He ascended from the Mount of Olives. And the angel asked those gathered there on the mount as he was ascending, men, why do you look up into the sky, you know, gazing into the sky? This same Jesus will come in like manner. Now we look at that and we say, oh, that's interesting. So Jesus is coming back again. We know he's coming back again. But we miss many times the details He's coming back in like manner. In what way? Just as he departed from the Mount of Olives, he will ascend to the Mount of Olives, the same mountain. It's not just in like manner. He said the the same location. How do we know this? Because Zechariah tells us that when he descends, he will put his foot on the Mount of Olives and there will be a valley that's created that will cut across the valley that's there today. The Kidron Valley It will cut right across that valley and it will enter into Jerusalem through the east gate that's been closed up. It's been closed up by the Turks for a long, long time. But Jesus is going to fulfill Bible prophecy. Jesus was fulfilling Bible prophecy. We are living in the, in the days where Bible prophecy is being fulfilled all around us. Did you guys hear, I'm sure you've heard about it, the Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem, in Israel, who say that they have been in contact with the Messiah, they have been in conversation with the Messiah. Their claim is Messiah is here, we're in conversation with him, and it's just within a matter of time and Messiah will be revealed. So you might be thinking, so what? 
you think that's Jesus, that Jesus came back and, and the, the Orthodox Jews are the one? No, no, no. That's not the Bible prophecy I'm referring to. The Bible prophecy I'm referring to is when Jesus says, don't believe them when they say the Christ, he's out in the desert or he's in the upper room. Don't believe them. There'll be many Christs that will come in my name. They are false Christs. Don't believe them. Jesus went on to say that when he came, the second coming, referring to the second coming, it will, it will be evident to everyone on planet Earth that Jesus has come back. It won't be a secret thing. It will be a very public thing. So we're living in the days where Bible prophecy is being fulfilled. I don't doubt that when they heard this, first they hear about Judas, but they don't know it was Judas. Then they hear that all of them will be caused to stumble the word stumble means to be entrapped or to trip up or to entice to sin, or it, it carries that word apostasy, which means to depart. They will all be made to stumble. I mean, when you hear that, you, that would be discouraging. And I think that they probably were all discouraged, except for one that was probably more offended than discouraged, and that one was Peter. In verse 29, Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. See, he throws all the other guys under the bus. He says, you know, I don't know about these guys. They're kind of flaky, you know, but let me tell you about me. There's nothing that's going to get me to stumble. In fact, he doubles down in verse 29. Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be made to stumble. Jesus said, I, I just read that, verse 31 is the doubling down. So he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And I suggest to you, I believe personally, that Peter meant what he said in the moment. Because Peter said what he felt in the moment. And in the moment, Peter felt brave. And we do the same thing. Sometimes we can make these proclamations, you know, because we feel a certain way, you know, and, and we make these statements. And sometimes, most of the time, <laughs> well, you know what I mean. We're disappointed in ourselves. Verse 32, it says, and they came to a place which was called or which was named Gethsemane. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Now, guys, the movement of, of Mark's gospel account Obviously, there's no mention of them leaving the upper room, but obviously they've left the upper room where they had Passover. They're making their way through the Kidron Valley. Gethsemane was a garden at the base of the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, outside of the walls there. And it was a place that they would go to quite often because Judas knew the location and he knew that this would be the place where they would go and spend some time after Passover. Maybe they talked about it beforehand. But Gethsemane, it means oil press. And no doubt there was an oil press there. 
If you go to Israel today, you'll go to a garden. It will say, this is the Garden of Gethsemane, and you'll find uh, trees, some of the olive trees that are very, very old there. And there's a church built there, of course. There's always a church built wherever something happened or supposedly happened in Israel. When I go to Israel, when I've gone to Israel, we go there just to kind of walk through the garden. But usually, well, what we used to do, I think it's been closed off now, is we go right across the little, there's a narrow little road that goes up to the top of the Mount of Olives. And there's a little garden, and there's, there's no buildings, there's no bathrooms, it's just grass and uh, olive trees. And we go in there because we think, well, this is most likely what it was like. I mean, it was a, a place where there were olive trees, and they would have laying down on the grass and there talked and prayed and whatever they would do. But I think it's worth noting the Gethsemane oil press. And as we go on, and if you're familiar with the text, you know that this is where Jesus was under intense pressure. You know, guys, I think sometimes when we read through the Bible, we say, well, I, I, we know that the cross was hard for Jesus. We know that that was difficult. We know that it must have been hard to be um, um, scourged before they crucified him, and surely it would have it would have physically hurt Jesus to be uh, have his hands and his feet pierced, and to have a crown of thorns beaten upon his brow, and and to have men blindfold him and slap him in the face and say prophesy and mock him and everything. Yeah, I I, I can imagine that must have been really hard for Jesus. But I'll tell you, we're missing it if we don't realize, if we don't understand that the misery, that the agony began before the cross. It began here in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, when you look at it, it says, he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. The old King James, or the King James, it's not called old King James. I have new King James, so I always say it old King. But King James Bible, King James Bible reads this way. He began to be sore amazed, S-O-R-E, sore amazed, and to be very heavy, very heavy. I was telling the first service that heavy is a word that I prefer because it's a word from my generation. It's a word that I would use, that my people my age that I hung out with would use that, oh, that's heavy. And, and we kind of all understood what that meant. It's something that's burdensome. It's something that's, that's heavy. It's a heavy load to carry. But it says he began to be sore amazed and, very, and to be very heavy. Weist. Weist is a, a Greek Bible scholar. Uh, I say is. I don't know. Is he still alive? He's, yeah, he's been gone for quite a while. But anyway, he's got good, Weist works and uh, very, very good. But, but he describes it this way. He describes it as a sensation of inconceivable fear, of overpowering mental distress. Now, Mark doesn't tell us, but we're told from the other gospel writers that he was under such stress that drops of blood, he was dripping like, like sweat, but they were drops of blood. And, you know, doctors tell us what was actually happening to Jesus at that time, and it just speaks of the the pressure, the unbelievable pressure that Jesus was under. Sore amazed. If you were to just look up 
that, that phrase and to look up the Greek, it, it literally means to throw into amazement or terror, to alarm thoroughly, to terrify completely, to be struck with terror. Now, it's hard when we read that description to think of Jesus experiencing that. It, to be heavy. It comes from a word which means, listen to this. I, I think this is interesting. Uncomfortable as one not at home. Uncomfortable as one not at home. It speaks of an experience of which one is not familiar and which causes deep distress. Exceedingly sorrowful, the New King James. It literally means grief all around. Grief all around. So I want you to think of that. Here Jesus, he's he has the 11. They make their way out to a familiar place. They're in the garden. He tells the majority of them to stay, stay, pray. I'm going to go pray. Stay here. Pray and watch. Pray and watch. And then he takes three of them. And we're not surprised by the three that he picked because we see these three, three times in the gospel accounts being singled out. And you got to wonder, why were they singled out? You know, we kind of say tongue-in-cheek. I mean, I think it's more joking than anything else that he took these three because he had to keep them in line because they were always getting into trouble, you know. But, but uh, we don't know that for sure. I think that he took these three because he was preparing them. On Wednesday night, uh, we looked at uh, a text from Matthew chapter 25, um, and the, the, the text dealing with the talent, you know, the ten, the two, the one. And each one was given the talent, the, the wedge of silver is what it was, amount, uh, based upon their abilities. So God doesn't give us more than we could handle. He gives what we're able to carry, to deal with. And as we looked at that text, um, I was thinking of these three, and I thought, well, Thomas's ministry and responsibility wasn't going to be like Peter's responsibility and ministry. And Peter was obviously a leader among them, even when Jesus was on the scene. You know, many, this is tradition, this is not Bible, there is no history, really true history to back this up, but Catholicism says that Peter was the first pope. Can I tell you that popes didn't even come around until at least 300 years after Christ, after the time of Constantine? Uh, Peter wasn't around. He wasn't the first pope. But Peter surely was a leader among them. But you know, guys, as you read the scriptures, we know that Peter wasn't even a leader or the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's where the church began, in Jerusalem. Who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem? Who was the the final man that they would go to? James, not Peter. But I think of Peter. I think of the role that he would serve. I think of the fact that, as we'll see today, that his faith faltered. The very thing he said he would not do, he did. And and he was so ashamed. and, And I think, I mean, it looked as if if the Lord would not have restored him as he did, as we see in John's gospel, the end of John's gospel account, You could almost picture Peter being one of those people who just bitterly walks away and you never hear from him again. But that was not the case. The Lord was preparing Peter. I think of James, the brother of John. 
Do you know that James was the first martyr of the 12? Judas wasn't a martyr. He was a self-murderer. But uh, James was the first of the remaining 11 that was killed. Remember, he was killed by Herod. And because the Jews liked the fact that Herod took out one of the apostles, Herod tried to go after Peter after that, but he was unable. And then John, of course, John, he was being prepared. He didn't know it at the time, but he was being prepared for a unique ministry. They tried to kill him. Uh, They tried to boil him in oil. uh, For some reason, he wouldn't cook. Um, And so they ended up exiling him to Patmos. And Patmos, there he receives, he sees, he literally sees And he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he lives out his days. But all of them had unique experiences with Jesus. And all three of them were together in these experiences, you know. And so he takes these three. He goes a little bit further. And and he warns them. First of all, he tells them what he's doing. And he says, listen, I want you to know my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death. Jesus said, I feel like I'm going to die. Have you ever been that stressed out? I've been this stressed out one time in my life where I felt like I'm not going to survive. I, I, I couldn't imagine what Jesus experienced. I'm not saying that my experience was like Jesus' experience. My little human frailties, you know, my little strength. I can't imagine what Jesus was experiencing. But he said to them, stay here and watch. I feel like I'm going to die. I'm going to go pray. Stay here and watch. And of course, it wasn't just watching. It was watch and pray. Watch and pray. And when he went a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. And then he adds, nevertheless, not, not what I will, but what, what you will. By the way, if it's possible, Jesus, what were you asking? Were you asking permission to let humanity perish in hell? No. What were you asking, Jesus? If there was any other possible way to redeem humanity... Father, can we do that instead? I hope you recognize the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is he did go to the cross. He did die. He was resurrected on the third day. All of these things, just as the scripture says, indicating that there is, there was no possible way to redeem humanity without the death of the sinless Son of God, God in the flesh. I point this out because, you know, sadly, I wish I could say this is what non-believers believe, but this is what apparently professing believers believe as well. Because there's a lot of people who like to profess their goodness. I'm a good guy. And, you know, well, explain, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't, or I do, and and everything's always measured by other people, you know, like like other people are the standard, (laughs) And other people aren't the standard. God's the standard. 
So you say, well, you know, I, I got a really bad neighbor and I'm nothing like him. You know, I'm a good guy compared to him. Well, that, that's great, you know, great for your family. <laughs> Not so great for you in the long run because it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't carry any weight. There's a lot of people who profess their goodness. But Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, as it is written, again, going back to the scriptures, going back. This is written. This was written long before. Let me remind you of this. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Which tells me and tells you that we all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. You know, guys, when you... Look at what Jesus prayed, and of course we know how the whole thing goes down. We know that he would be arrested. We'll see that even tonight. And he'd be handed over to the Gentiles because, of course, the Jews didn't have the right to crucify anybody, and he needed to be crucified. They didn't know that he needed to be crucified, but it was spoken of that he'd be crucified. In fact, Daniel said that he would be crucified before crucifixion was something that people did. Do you know they used to impel people on stakes? But it was the Romans who mastered the art of crucifixion. And it was for such a time as this. And this is what the scriptures are very clear. Jesus couldn't have been born at any time. Jesus was born at the specific time, the time in history where everything was lined up, where everything needed to be set up to fulfill Bible prophecy. Well, if it's possible. Verse 37, then he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, do you know what Simon means? To hear. Simon, listen. Simon, are you sleeping? Don't you think it's interesting? I mean, again, you know, Mark is one account, we have four accounts, but don't you think it's interesting that, that, that Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus said, John, get up. James, what are you doing? You're still sleeping. Simon, what's going on? It's interesting, he doesn't call him Peter here. Rock, Rocky, but he calls him here, here. I think that's interesting. And it's interesting how Mark singles Peter out. Why? Because Peter was Mark's source. Peter was the one who mentored and discipled John Mark. And we see this in the the scriptures. And Peter here is singled out, no doubt, because Peter probably felt very much singled out in that moment. And again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he said the third time, uh, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I can't imagine the scene. 
Of course, Jesus, he said, all of you will be made to stumble, you know, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This prophecy will be fulfilled. Jesus, why are you telling us this? To shame us? To embarrass us? To point out that we're complete failures? No. To show you that I'm aware of everything that's going to transpire. That nothing is taking me by surprise. And because you're mine, I don't want anything to take you by surprise. Because you guys are going to be living, experiencing these things in the moment. And what happens to us as humans as we're experiencing things in the moment? Man, our perspective is constantly changing. Oh, we're going down for the count. This is it. There's no hope for us. Whatever it might be, you know. And this is why we need to be people of the word because we have promises in the word of God. In essence, the Lord was saying to them, guys, I want you to look beyond the cross and the resurrection because I'm already looking beyond the cross and the resurrection. I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Okay. I want you guys to think about that because you're going to think that this is it. When they take me, when they crucify me, when they begin to mistreat me, you guys are going to think this is it. You're going to wonder, what have we done with the last three years of our lives? We thought he was the Messiah. Now look at what's happening. And Jesus said, no, don't lose perspective. Guys, listen, this is the life application. If you don't get anything out of today's study, you got to get it out of here. We're at the end. We're watching Bible prophecy being fulfilled every week. I was watching a little 10-minute Bible prophecy thing. By the way, Sunday night, Bible prophecy, great events, how they time with Bible. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, downstairs. Hope you come out for that. But I was listening to this little 10-minute thing. And uh, the pastor, it was actually my mother's pastor when my mother was alive. I like to point out that now my mother has the best pastor, uh, Jesus. But... um, but he, 10 minutes, 10 minute prophecy update, and he just read headlines. And he says, all of these things have just happened within the past two or three days. And it was like, it was like you were reading what Jesus said. There will be wars and rumors of wars, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And I mean, it was one thing after another, after another, after another. And it's like people, even people in the church are so blind to this. Oh, Jesus could come back in a thousand years or 10,000 years. Yeah, keep thinking that way if it helps you sleep. But the fact of the matter is you need to be ready because he comes at a time you do not expect. And you need to be ready. And the way you make yourself ready is by placing your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You could laugh now and you're fulfilling Bible prophecy. Do you know that? Because Peter tells us that scoffers will come in the last day saying, oh, where is the promise of his coming? Things have gone as they've always been, you know. You're fulfilling Bible prophecy. It's being fulfilled all around us, even by some among us. I would suggest don't scoff, don't laugh, but bend the knee and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Well, immediately, verse 43, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. It seems so strange. These were the religious leaders. This wasn't the Roman soldiers. This was the religious leaders. 
waiting for the Messiah. <laughs> Messiahs in their midst. They were fulfilling Bible prophecy. Jesus said, I come in my Father's name and you reject me. And I believe he's speaking of the Antichrist, which is yet future. He says, another will come in his own name and him you will receive. And this is, you know, they were almost, the near fulfillment of this is that they were saying, man, Messiah's got to be anyone other than you because you're busting our chops all the time. You're calling us out. You're saying we're hypocrites. You're telling the people that they need to listen to us because of our authority as religious leaders within Israel, but not to do as we do because we say one thing and do another thing. So they didn't like him. They wanted to get rid of him. Anyway, we live in a world, by the way, I don't know if I need to point this out, but we live in a world that's, that's trying to get rid of Jesus. Have you seen it? There is an attack, all-out attack. We're seeing it even in the United States of America, an attack on Christianity. And we need to realize, guys, we need to back off and not feel like victims because it's not an attack on Christianity. It's an attack on Christ. We need to understand that. It's not boo-hoo, poor us. It's not us that they don't like. I mean, we're the physical things that they could see. But it's Christ and his message that they don't want. They don't want to hear. Well, anyway, Judas comes out. Remember, he's promised money. He comes out. He's got a mob of people. They've got swords. They've got clubs. (laughs) Now, his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him and lead him away safely. Now, if we're not careful, we might say, you know, Judas wasn't that bad of a guy. I mean, he wanted Jesus to be led away safely. Is that what it says? Or was it, because remember, guys, context is important. Remember, they wanted to arrest him. In fact, Jesus will point out the fact that you could have arrested me at any time. I'm not a fugitive. I'm not on the run. I was in your presence. Um, But... Remember, they didn't want to do it during the Passover, for they feared the people. Because the people, many of the people, the common people, heard him gladly, the scriptures tell us. And so, you know, that could cause bodily injury to them if they were to take Jesus. And I don't think that Judas was concerned about Jesus' safety. I think he was saying this concerning their safety. Here, I brought you out here. It's at nighttime. There's only, you know, these 11 guys. I don't think, well, watch that big guy over there, Peter. He might try to do something. But the rest of these guys, you know, they're pretty passive. I think everything will go down well, you know. We'll outnumber them. We'll surprise them. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Of course, we know this. Everyone knows this, don't they? Everyone knows of the kiss of Judas. And it's been, you know, in poems and songs and people make it into things that it (laughs) was not. To be betrayed by a kiss is really disgraceful. I mean, we wouldn't even think of kissing, you know, another man or someone that wasn't our spouse, maybe. When I went to, I went to Bulgaria right after communism fell and, um, 
the Bulgarians were interesting. From what I understand, it was the only place on the earth where this means no and this means yes. And I found that out because every time they would offer someone, they'd say, oh, no, thank you. And they would just, you know, and just, just fill up your glass or your plate or whatever. And they'd say, no, no, no. If you mean no, you need to say, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get that through my mind. But another thing that was unique about Bulgaria at the time, it might have changed, is like a lot of countries, you know, that was a former Eastern Bloc country, um, they would greet people. We see this in the Middle East as well, greeting with a kiss. The French do it. I should have been used to it. My, uh, our brother-in-law was French, and, and uh, we worked on job sites together, construction sites together, and John Charles would come up and go, oh, Denny, and give me a kiss. I'd say, John, Charles, please, don't do that on the job site. <laughs> Tracy and I were in San, um, um, San Inez. We haven't seen John Charles for 30 years. And Tracy's mom had a store there, and we were in the store, and this guy comes walking in, and I heard his voice before I saw him, and um, I said, oh, it's John Charles. And I knew he had lived there. He was like a horse whisperer guy in San Inez, kind of a famous horse trainer. And, um, and he walked up, and he goes, oh, Danny, and I just surrendered, you know. <laughs> but, um, but in Bulgaria, they kissed like really close to the lips. So, I mean, every time as they'd come in, I'd try to, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just, I'm an American. We don't do that, you know. But anyway, but to be betrayed by a kiss, you know, I think it's interesting. Why would he give that symbol? Why would he give that sign? Was it, guys, listen, again, so often, and this is why it's so important that we are students of the word, and that we read the word, and we don't read into the word. You know, if, if we thought of Jesus as some of the Renaissance art, we would say, well, of course, Judas would just say, Jesus is the one with the halo over his head. You can't, you know, he's the one lit up in the garden there. You know, you can't miss him. And, and we always see that, you know, like, he, or he's so beautiful, so handsome, that you know, obviously that's Jesus. But that's man's rendition of what they think Jesus might have looked like. Apparently, he was so ordinary looking that in the dark of the night, he might have looked like Peter or John or James or Thomas or Bartholomew. And so he had to be singled out. And then they laid their hands on him and they took him. And remember, we're told that they began to beat on him even then while he was still in the garden. Have you ever been beaten on like that? Just beat up? You know, it's a very humiliating thing. But it's a hard thing not to want to defend yourself. And Jesus did not defend himself. He did not. Remember, he was like a sheep before his shears. He was, uh, before its shears. He was silent before his accusers. The humility of Jesus. I mean, boy, that's powerful to me. As a man, I just look at that and I say, boy, I don't think I could do that, Lord. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus, now note how Mark, he just kind of moves right on. 
you know, he does. So, so if, if all we had was Mark's gospel, we would picture there's a guy without an ear. And that's it. That's just how it ends, you know. But of course, we know that Jesus put the ear back on. <laughs> I don't know what he did, but he healed the ear. And somebody tells us who the unnamed swordsman was. Do you want to guess who told us who the unnamed swordsman was? Well, let me tell you who the unnamed swordsman was. It was Peter. So do you want to guess who told us it was Peter? John. The rivals. Yes, John would say, Peter and I both ran to the tomb, and I run faster than Peter. I got there before him. That's what he tells us. He says, but Peter went in first, so, you know, kudos for him. Oh, by the way, did I mention the fact that, that on that night that Jesus was arrested, Peter takes out his sword, and he just starts swinging wildly. I mean, it's like, what was he going for? The guy's head? He got his ear, and he lopped that thing up, and Jesus had to clean up his mess, you know. You guys might not see things as that as being silly, or I think, I think it is, because it shows me the humanity, and we have to do this, because to, this is what happens, guys. People come in, they say, Bible, everyone in the Bible is holy. There's only one person in the Bible that's holy. One. There's only one person in the Bible who has not sinned. One. You, name a prophet. Name, name an apostle. They all sinned. Every one of them. Every person. Well, Ruth, she was a wonderful woman. Yes, she was also a sinner. What about Esther? Yeah, she was a sinner. What about Hannah? What about Peter? What about Paul? What about, you know, and they were all sinners. See, if we, if we don't recognize that, we think, I can never be like them. And people say stuff like this. I'm no saint. Always say, I'm no saint. Yes, you are. According to the Bible, you have been sanctified by the Lord, so you are a saint. That's what it means. You go, oh, I, I didn't realize that. Because see, it's the, the trappings of men, the traditions of men. This is a saint. We pray to him. No, don't pray to saints. You don't pray to men. You pray to the Lord. You see what I'm saying? The Bible, guys, it's not boring, it's intriguing. The Bible builds our faith. The Bible gives us perspective, and the Bible gives us hope. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But, look it, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. All. Peter too. Peter says, I'll die with you, Lord. And I kind of imagine Peter, you know, as a man in the moment, in the heat of the moment, adrenaline's running, you take your sword off, you're ready to lop off some heads. I'll die with you if I have to go to prison with you. I'm here, I mean what I say. Jesus, I told you that I would not deny you. Swack, swack, swack. But when it was time for them to be scattered, they all scattered. And so did Peter. And we're not even at the point where Peter denied that he knew the Lord. Do, do, I hope that you see this, guys, that the agony of Christ didn't begin just at the cross. It began in the garden. 
that the betrayal or the denial of Peter did not begin when he was warming his hands. That's when it was finished up. It began in the, in the garden. And we end with this. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body, and the young man, or the young men, excuse me, laid hold of him, this young man, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Do you know that Mark is the only one that tells us about this young man? It's believed that Mark was the young man. And that's why he's the only one that tells us about this. This is Mark's humble way, perhaps, of saying, without naming himself, without speaking in the third person, saying, I was there as well. And I scattered as well. I fled as well. In fact, you know, guys, you know what we know about John Mark? That wasn't the first time he fled. That wasn't the first time fear got his feet a-moving. When he was with Barnabas and Paul, because he was Barnabas's nephew or cousin, they were related in some way. And um, when they were on a missionary trip, John Mark left. We're not quite sure why. Perhaps he was fearful. You know, this isn't what I thought it would be. This is difficult. You know, Paul, uh, you're going to get us killed because the things you say, a lot of people hate you, Paul. I don't know what it was, but we know he left. Guys, here's... Here's what I want to end with. Jesus told the disciples what was coming before it came, not to shame them, but because he knew that their faith would falter, but it did not need to fail. In Luke's account, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, here, here, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Remember that? But I prayed for you. That your faith may not fail, which means to die, to cease. Uh, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to thrash you. It's interesting, I pointed this out to the first service, that in the Greek, the you, Y-O-U, is plural, meaning that it wasn't just Simon that Satan wanted to thrash, but all of them, which should remind us that we have a a foe, an enemy, who would love to thrash us. And, And yet Jesus, he's encouraging Simon. Simon, Simon, are you still asleep? Simon, wake up. Simon, pray. Simon, watch. Simon, Simon, listen. The... The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Simon, was he saying, if Simon would have watched and prayed, would he have denied that he knew the Lord? I don't know. Peter may 
his faith may have faltered, but it did not fail. One verse, Proverbs 24, 16, not even a full verse, half of the verse. For a righteous man or woman may fall seven times and rise again. Listen, this is the key. Your faith may falter. In fact, I'm not a prophet, but I will say with great confidence, your faith will falter. Our faith falters, but it does not need to fail. And what happens many times is we're not heeding what Solomon wrote in Proverbs. We're not rising again. My faith is faltered. There's no hope for me. Isn't that where Peter was, guys? Think about it. Peter, you know, bold Peter. I'm going fishing. I'm going back to what I know how to do. This is ridiculous. I don't know what, what's gone on the last three years, but I'm going back. i got a family to support. I'm going fishing. Goes and he fishes. And you kind of wonder about these fishermen, you know. They had a hard time catching fish. And then Jesus is on the shore. He says, little, little children, who talks to men like that, Jesus? Little children, throw your net on the other side. What? Then Peter, bing, (laughs) been here, done this before. They cast the net out. The net is full of fish immediately, which gives uh, Peter, you know, a reason to distract himself. Remember, he jumps in. They say it's the Lord. Peter jumps in. He almost seems like he's going right to the Lord. And maybe as he's mid you know, swimming as he's swimming in. Maybe he's thinking to himself. Maybe his flesh is is convincing him. Maybe it's the enemy once again thrashing him, saying, Peter, what are you going to do when you go up to Jesus? Really, Peter? You loser? You're a joke of a man. Maybe he just stops swimming as fast. By then, the boat catches up with him. He pulls the net ashore, and he starts counting the fish. Man, I can identify with that. I I felt intimidated or self-conscious, and you do anything to busy yourself, and I can identify with Peter. And and Jesus is so patient, you know. You done counting, Peter? How many fish are there? What was it, 153, something like that? I, I don't remember. Peter, come and eat. He's already got fish roasting on the fire, you know. They're eating. You get the impression, at least I get the impression as you read John's account, that it's, it's this kind of very relaxed. I don't think Peter was relaxed, but, but it wasn't like it was something that was very hurried, that it was just a very kind of casual type of thing. And then Jesus, maybe he's just talking, you know, this is the resurrected Lord. He's talking with his guys, you know, and And then he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And, you know, Bible students, we say, more than these, more than the fish, more than these, more than the other disciples. I think maybe that, maybe both, you know, because he said, even if these others, you know, deny you, I will not be made, you know. Peter, do you love me? Do you remember that? Peter, do you agape me? Oh, Lord. 
I, you almost just picture Peter, you know, I don't know why I always picture Peter big. He just had a big personality. Won't it be funny if we get to heaven, he's just this little guy, you know, but, but he just, Peter, you know, oh, Lord, you know, you know. Second question, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me more than these? Three times. You know, you'd almost feel the pain of, you know, just Peter's heart just ready to burst and say, Lord, are you just rubbing this in? All right, I denied you three times. I get it. I did it. I did the very thing I swore I wouldn't do. I get it. And Jesus says the third time, Peter, do you phileo me? Are you fond of me? Yes, Lord, you know that I'm fond of you. Lord, I was so quick to pronounce my great love and devotion to you more than anybody else, and I've proven myself to be wrong. But each time, Jesus was saying, rise up, rise up. Peter, rise up. When Jesus was speaking, recorded in Luke's gospel, he says, when you return to me, Peter, strengthen your brethren. Peter, you're going to fail. But your faith isn't going to fail. Your faith is going to falter. But you don't don't have to put yourself on the shelf. Listen, there's too many people that have done that. I failed. I've messed up. I could never serve the Lord. Listen, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It is. You mess up. What do you do? Repent. Lord, would you forgive me? Would you help me, Lord? Would you give me strength to do better next time? We can be like Peter and rise up to strengthen our brothers and sisters. We could be like Mark to rise again, not to you know, flee once more, but to take a stand for the gospel, for the truth of God's word. Would you stand with me, please? Father, I pray for those of us gathered here and those watching online. Lord, I, you know where each one of us is at. and Oh, Lord. Even as I'm praying this, you know, each individual knows how their faith has faltered. Maybe even this week, maybe even today, it's faltered. But Lord, would you, would you please speak into our hearts, remind us that we could rise up, that we don't have to throw in the towel, that we don't have to wallow in our failures, that we don't have to, you know, resign ourselves to that person who, you know, obviously, I make promises I, I can't keep. Would you help us, Lord, to recognize that it's not us, it's not our strength, it's not our great faith, but it's you, Lord. Would you remind us, Lord, that the reason you felt so uncomfortable and not at home as you were in agony in the garden, And as you went to the cross and you were in agony at the cross, upon the cross, was because you were not at home with the sin that you were bearing, our sin. Would you help us, Lord, to look to you as the author and finisher of our faith, that we'd emphasize that finisher, that you don't start things and not follow through, Would you 
Help us to remember, Lord Jesus, that you're not against us, but you're for us. You, you want us to walk with you. Would you help us, Lord? And I pray for the man, for the woman, for the young person that maybe they've just felt, they believe that they've gone too far. Pray, Lord, that you would just put it in their heart because I can't persuade them. If I could, someone else could come along and convince them otherwise. But by your spirit, would you just, that it would be a revelation for them. They say, I, I could walk with the Lord. I could be saved. I could place my faith in Christ. I could once again put my hands to the plow and move forward and not look back. I don't have to live in the past of my failures, but I could fix my eyes on Jesus and watch with, walk with him. So help us, Lord, each one of us to believe that and to do that in Jesus' name.